Welcome to MRS Bulletin Materials News. During the crisis of the global COVID-19 pandemic, scientists from many fields have turned away from their usual work to see what they can contribute to the fight against the coronavirus. Material scientists are no exception, in fact, have a big and varied part to play. From the manufacture of protective clothing and the invention of antiviral surface treatments to developing platforms for diagnostic tests and for the delivery of antiviral drugs, materials research could potentially supply some of the key enabling technologies to keep the virus under control and save lives. I'm Philip Ball, and for this MRS podcast, I spoke to a few of the researchers engaged in this effort. More details can be found in my article in the MRS Bulletin. I began by speaking to biomolecular engineer Catherine Froman of the University of Delaware, who is working on materials-based therapies for COVID-19. I asked her to explain the nature of the beast, as it were. What is the virus behind the pandemic? And how does it infect us, sometimes fatally? This is a coronavirus, like many other coronaviruses that have you know, influenced uh, humanity. This one is similar to ones we've seen before, but it has some unique features that make it a little more potent and a little more um, communicable. And so that's really where the pandemic component happens. Uh, the symptoms take a little longer for the host to respond to, and so that's why it's very difficult to contain. And we see the community spread uh, being very difficult to track down and how it's bloomed into this pandemic. The virus requires different aspects of the the human lung in order to cause the infection in the first place. And so it requires two pieces of the the human itself. So the first thing it needs is this ACE2 receptor. So angiotensin uh, receptor 2. You have a whole bunch of these um, angiotensin receptors in your body which help regulate your blood pressure. And so ACE2 appears um, highly expressed in your nose and also your deep lung and the alveolar region. And so the virus uses this ACE2 receptor found on your cells in order to bind. And so it has the spike protein that gives it its characteristic crown, the coronavirus, these spike protein um, decorations, binds to the ACE2. And that ACE2 um, binding event requires something else. It requires a a host protease. And so you need this perfect combination of events of not only the virus being present uh, in contact with the ACE2 receptor, but also being activated by this host protease. That binding event then allows the virus to enter into the cell where it hijacks the host cell um, mechanisms, and it's able to then reproduce its own set of proteases and um, proteins and then uh, kind of hijack the machinery and butt out of the, of the cell. This happens, um, we think now, predominantly either in the nose um, or the deep regions of the lung. So once it gets in, there's a combination between not only the viral replication, which is going to spread from cell to cell and, and start to populate, but then how your body responds to it. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. But really, it's how well your immune response um, shows up to the to play the game uh, and how quickly it's able to respond and if it responds in the right kind of order. The adaptive immune response is the real powerful part, but it takes a while for that to happen. It's the um, this innate immune response that has to prime the adaptive, it, so it has to start, it has, but it also has to maintain the, the lung environment and keep the virus from going crazy. If it doesn't respond quickly enough or in the right way, the virus can continue to replicate and there's this lag period that happens. And so you go into kind of a, 
a low response period initially, which switches over to a hyper response because now the virus has gone unchecked, the adaptive immune response hasn't ramped up enough or correctly enough, and the, adaptive, uh, the innate immune response hasn't been able to clear the virus. And so you see this thing called a cytokine storm. That's basically your immune system catching up from a sluggish response to start. It over-responds um, by dumping a ton of different types of cytokines and tries to recruit more innate immune cells. These innate immune cells then come into the lung. And so it, by the process of being recruited to the lung, they have to cross from the blood into the airspace. That opens up a little bit of... Um, uh, an opening from the blood to the airspace, which can allow fluid to, to leak in. Uh, and so not only are you having cells coming in, into your lung, but a little bit of fluid too. Uh, and these cells then come and they start secreting more signaling molecules, more of these cytokines. So now you have this runaway train of more cells, more fluid, more cytokines, more cells, and this starts to snowball. It fills up your lungs, essentially. And so your lungs go very rapidly into this state of being filled with fluid, and obviously that's gonna affect gas exchange. Uh, and so once that happens, then you end up into this acute respiratory distress-like syndrome where um, the, the, there's really not great treatments and there's a, it's very difficult to, to intervene in that snowball once it starts. You were already working, as I understand it, on lung inflammatory conditions and therapeutics for that before COVID-19 came along. So I guess it was, uh, you know, <laughs> a, a no brainer to, to turn your attention to this. But it, it sounds as though you, you are doing so in a way that is relevant to material science. So, you know, as opposed to looking for a small molecule drug agent, you're taking a different approach. Can you say something about that approach? Absolutely. So I think within the past, I don't know, decade of nanoparticle drug delivery technology, we've realized as a materials science drug delivery field that putting a, a package together, a, drug, a nanoparticle, a particulate, uh, allows for direct interfacing with the innate immune system. So these are things that initially we said, oh, if you inject them into the body, they go into the liver, they end up in macrophages. Macrophages are innate immune cells. And so if we think about COVID-19, uh, innate immune cells are the first ones that see, uh, that start to go, hay go in the wrong direction, go haywire in COVID-19 and, and cause this ARDS-like symptom. So when I think of drug delivery now, I think of ways that we can engineer immune responses by the materials components that we're incorporating into our drug delivery system, but maybe a better way to call it would be an immune engineering platform. So by putting um, our material science expertise uh, into play, we can deliver really precise, uh, controlled um, biological presentations, multiple signals, delayed responses um, that we can engineer into the particle that then goes and interfaces with the uh, immune system. The value of nanoparticles as therapeutic agents is emphasised too by Thomas Webster of Northeastern University in Boston, a specialist in nanomedicine. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, the one, but this is also true for all small molecules, right, is we know viruses are nanostructured, right? You know, norovirus, I believe, is 40 nanometers, COVID-19, a little over 100 nanometers, so whenever you, your target is a nanometer structure, like a virus, 
to me, what a better approach than to design something at that same dimension to stop it from functioning. So that's one very easy reason that we love to use nanoparticles for, um, for killing viruses or for, for stopping virus function. The other is nanoparticles can respond to external activation. And this is not true for a lot of drugs, right? So let's see, I have another um, particle, gold, right? Gold nanoparticles. And the great thing is this is not gold, right? This is pink. So you can change the color. This is a great example, right? You have these visible wavelengths of light coming in here. It responds to these nanoparticles to be a different color than what you might expect. Well, gold, as we know from looking at these to kill cancer cells, gold easily interacts with infrared. So if you had an infrared wand that you could put wherever these nanoparticles are in your body, these nanoparticles will heat up. And we know, um, in fact, in the US, there was a lot of controversy about this, <laughs> but we know uh, viruses are susceptible to increases in temperature. Sometimes we need to get higher than you know, 90 degrees Fahrenheit or, or 37C or something like that. But you can find a temperature that will disrupt all virus structures. So if you, again, get this gold nanoparticle, you put a functional region on there, you get it to attach to a virus, to COVID-19, use that wand to activate. And, and you know, most of the time, COVID-19 is in your lungs, right? Or at least it's creating problems in your lungs. So you use the infrared wand to activate the particles in your lungs. They heat up, they destroy the virus, and the virus can't now replicate inside of mammalian cells. So because you're reducing the size of a nanoparticle, it's more susceptible to this activation through infrared, through magnetic properties, through other kinds of external mechanisms. Another reason that we love to look at um, nanoparticles for disrupting virus function is you can use multiple functional regions and attach them to the nanoparticle. So here, here's an example. So COVID-19, one of the big problems is the spike proteins on the virus, the things that stick out and attach to the cell, they've been mutating, right? So if you're designing a drug that goes only after those spike proteins and the spike proteins mutate, your drug isn't effective anymore. And this is the huge problem that our old fashioned conventional medicine runs into. So instead, if you take a, a nanoparticle like these gold nanoparticles and you put three different regions on this nanoparticle that can attach to the virus, well, you've increased your chances that it can still work even if one of those virus regions mutates. So by doing multiple functionalizations, by having a size of a nanoparticle that can even get in between these spike proteins on COVID-19, you, you maximize your chance that a virus mutation will not render your approach useless. So those are just some of the reasons, you know, and we've known this for, right, certainly we know nanoparticles being nano <laughs> for a long time, and we've maximized that benefit to kill cancer cells, to kill bacteria. We're just bringing it down to the virus level. We know that nanoparticles can maximize interaction with external stimuli like infrared magnetic properties, and we know they're easy to functionalize. So it was really just putting those pieces together for us that led us to look at 
disrupting COVID-19. The other thing I really want to mention about the promise of nanoparticles, as opposed to drugs, is um, uh, you can make nanoparticles out of elements on the periodic table that boost your immune system. So um, I think I have an example here, selenium, right? So here's selenium. Uh, selenium, if, if anyone's been following selenium research, it actually is part of your natural diet. So you need a certain amount of selenium to stay healthy. And there's a lot of studies correlating selenium to an increase in your immune system. So as we know, a lot of people who get viral infections, their immune system goes down. In fact, uh, there's a term that's used, cytokine storm, to describe COVID-19 infections where your immune system is creating a lot of these cytokines which are having a negative impact on your health. So one of the other great things about using nanoparticles is you can not only, we've seen in our studies, you can not only functionalize these selenium nanoparticles to attach to the virus, to deactivate the virus, but then the selenium or other nanoparticles can degrade and boost your immune system. So you almost get two good things happening at once, right? You're stopping the virus, but then you're also boosting your immune system. A lot of the, the drugs that I see being developed today have two different approaches for that. You, you need a drug to boost your immune system and you need a drug to deactivate the virus. And the great thing about nanoparticles in many diseases is you're combining multiple properties into one therapeutic or one type of approach. In other words, with nanoparticles, what you have is not a single drug, but as Catherine has said, a general platform technology that can be adapted to face different challenges. Tom Webster. You know, automatically when a virus comes up, we all think, okay, let's develop a vaccine which is great, right? Vaccines have certainly helped us tremendously through the decades. But, you know, we're waiting, right? We're in this period of waiting, <laughs> for which, you know, in the meantime, economies get shut down, people lose jobs. So I don't think developing a vaccine is what I call a platform technology, but something like this could be a platform technology because every new virus you'll have a different region to attach to the nanoparticle based on that virus. But here's your, your platform, right? Your, your particle is the same. So that should accelerate FDA approval, regulatory approval. That should also accelerate commercialization. So I think we need a lot more of those platform technologies because that makes the whole process faster to get something out there that can help people. The idea then is to design some interaction that allows the nanoparticles to stick to the virus. I asked Tom how he does that. We know that the spike proteins attached to a particular uh, membrane protein in human cells. Are you mimicking that docking site in the attachment sites? Yes, that's one of the regions. But remember, we're going after multiple regions, right? Not just the region where the S protein attaches to the cell to begin the internalization and replication process. So we're, we're going after that region, but also there are envelope proteins on the virus. So there's a circular region and then the spikes, the S proteins that, that come out of that. We're also targeting an envelope region. 
And the other thing we have learned, and other people have learned this too, is you can disrupt viruses, kill viruses uh, through reactive oxygen species. Things like silver, copper, ceria, which is cerium oxide. These are these are excellent producers of reactive oxygen species. And actually, the thought is when you have a nanoparticle, you're going from big down to small, that increase of surface area you get with a nanoparticle allows you to create even more reactive oxygen species. So when we get the nanoparticles to attach to the envelope protein, we are seeing this increase of reactive oxygen species which is destroying that membrane, the envelope protein membrane of the virus. So that's another strategy. So we, we are big fans of let's create one particle that has multiple strategies, not just go after the typical S protein region that attaches to a mammalian cell. Because again, we, we're, max, we're trying to maximize our ability to disrupt that virus in case that S protein mutates in the future. It sounds as though there are several potential disruptive strategies as well. You've talked about using you know, photothermal methods to just heat the, the, the virus up, reactive oxygen. Uh, presumably, you know, there are other things that you could, other agents that you could also attach to the nanoparticles, you know, basically kind of drugs or pro-drugs that are then going to hit it. Or perhaps right. is it enough even to simply have that physical attachment that just blocks the, the virus from... That's right. That's an excellent point, you know, and it brings up a whole other category of nanomaterials that we and other people are investigating. So there's a family of nanomaterials that are much different than these kind of metal oxides, right? The self-assembled nanomaterials are are being explored uh, to a great extent to basically serve as a blanket around COVID-19 and other viruses so that their active sites are no longer exposed to attach to a a cell membrane. So these self-assembled materials, I think are really promising because ours happens to be based on DNA-based pairs um, that we're creating synthetically and it can attach to one region and then kind of like Legos, it, it goes around the virus and basically forms a blanket. And we know from other studies that these self-assembled molecules are safe to use in the body. So by covering, blanketing this virus, I think that's another key strategy that can really help uh, deactivate uh, a virus. I suggested to Tom that one of the other advantages with nanoparticles is that you can use materials that have already received FDA approval for other applications, potentially speeding up the development process. That's absolutely correct. And of course, we know FDA, you know, they approve materials for certain applications, right? So so here's a great example, right? Here's iron oxide nanoparticles that we make in the lab. These were approved a long time ago for MRI. Mm-hmm. So for magnetic resonance imaging, where a magnetic nanoparticle can enhance the image. So of course, one of the great things we wanted to start with is could we now take these magnetic nanoparticles, iron oxide, find a region to attach to the particles so that they in turn can attach to COVID-19 and, because, and, and by doing so keep COVID-19 from attaching to a mammalian cell getting in the cell and then replicating, right? For how viruses replicate. So we think if you, you know, get a nanoparticle to attach to that virus, you can keep it 
from replicating inside a cell. So by starting, you know, with something that's been FDA approved for a different application, industry was more likely to collaborate with us than if we introduced a brand new chemistry, brand new approach. And how about the means of delivery? Are, are these going yeah. to be injectable? Will they be inhalable? Uh, will you yes. use them just as surface coatings? Maybe all of those. Yeah, it could be, but one of the area we're really focused on, and again, because this is mostly a respiratory problem, is we are focusing on aerosolizing, inhaling, you know, much like you, you have an inhaler if you have the asthma. And that's another great thing for nanoparticles in general. They're already very small. So it is, it is really not hard to aerosolize a nanoparticle because they're already really small. So, and, and that's not true, you know, for some drugs or for some other material formulations that are a little bit harder to aerosolize, but we absolutely want to have the delivery method be as close as possible to the organ, the lungs that are really suffering the most from this uh, viral infection. This question of how best to deliver a therapeutic agent to the right place has also been key to Catherine Froman's approach. Being a specialist already in pulmonary medicine, she has focused on getting her particles to work at the site that the coronavirus itself hits most destructively. My lab really focuses on doing this in the lung. And the lung obviously presents very unique challenges because it has a unique set of immune cells and it's so critical to normal breathing function. You breathe thousands, tens of thousands of times a day, you're inhaling billions of particles. And so you have a unique set of cells that are um, specific to the lung that are geared to deal with foreign responses. And certainly delivering things to those cells is a challenge in its own. How do you access them and target them is, is, uh, presents unique challenges. And then certainly the design of the materials itself, how do you interface correctly with the immune system to stimulate it correctly without overstimulating it? So the challenge always with the immune system is, about, is striking that balance. It's important certainly to manage the virus, but really the severe aspect of this disease comes from um, aberrant host immune responses. And so finding the right way at the right time to intervene and deliver cues within that kinetic time landscape. So you, um, if you think about initially being a, a suppressive immune response or a delayed immune response, you might want to activate it. But once it's activated, finding ways to turn it off. And so understanding the clinical presentation uh, and then how to deliver those sequential cues that are not, it's not just a, a binary small molecule, but have to act on certain cells in certain uh, specific timing is really where the engineering and materials challenges come into play. And I understand you have in mind that these nanoparticles will be delivered by inhalation. Yes, so that's where my research group has uh, turned its focus um, and is really the, the heart of what we do. Uh, if we think about where the virus, where the infection actually occurs, you, you're inhaling it in, it gets into your nose, it gets into your lung. So if you want to stop the virus in its tracks, you really need to be treating at the airspace. But that's hard to do. Um, and while inhalers are pretty ubiquitous, we think about them for asthma, they really haven't had the great advances in the same way other nanoparticles, other material science drug delivery applications have been because it's very difficult to know um, if I inhale something or you inhale something, do they go to the same place? Do we get the right dose? How do we measure that? 
Um, did we, and you know, where in, you know, how deep did it go? Did it hit those right cells? Um, we're, um, I think as a field still behind on some of those questions. And so we really need to be pushing that area of the research going forward. In my lab, we're, co we're trying to talk everything about uh, innate immune cell signaling and cytokine cascades to fundamental, um, you know, Navier-Stokes equation expression of turbulent airflow in the glottis region. So you really have to have an understanding of that unique airspace environment in order to, to efficiently deliver your therapeutic to the regions you want to know where those cells are in order to stimulate them. And there's still a lot uh, that we're actively working on in that area. Specifically then, which materials are you using in your lab? Yeah, so we in our lab really like uh, polymer-based systems and because they give us a degree of control that we can really dial in. And so we start a lot of times with a peg diacrylate-based backbone and we build in a ton of different functionality where we can uh, control the degradation rates. We've published recently on um, really fine-tuning that so we can say not only do these get inhaled, but they're going to degrade over a reasonable time scale inside cells, outside of cells. Um, but then it also allows us to do a, a bunch of orthogonal chemistry by incorporating different monomers that we can then have surface functionalization uh, with multiple moieties that really control spacings and degradation handles. So by PEG here, you're talking about polyethylene glycol, which, if I understand rightly, has already a history of use as a safe, approved, biodegradable polymer. So I guess essentially that gives you a head start. Absolutely. So yeah, so PEG um, is used ubiquitously in uh, drug delivery applications. Essentially, we're trying to engineer from the start biodegradable systems that we know will be relatively inert and well tolerated by the immune system, that the material, the base material itself isn't causing any sort of immune response. And that's key to then dialing in those precise immune cues later on. You don't want to have started with something that was already stimulatory in one direction or the other. And so polyethylene glycol based systems, PEG, really allows us to have that, um, as far as we can tell, inert background. I mean, it, it seems to me that this is, well, I think you you said it yourself, that really this is a uh, a new approach to therapeutics in the sense that I think you maybe used the term immune engineering. This really is an engineering problem, that it's not simply finding a chemical agent that does a specific thing. You want these uh, the, these therapeutics to do several things. You want them to say to cells, let's say, hey guys there's a virus that looks a bit like this coming your way so you might need to you know get ready for that but at the same time or at a later time to say okay that's enough don't get overexcited we you know or, or you're going to cause problems that you're really trying to control something that is a, a, a complex process uh, do we do we have any um proof of principle that that kind of approach can work Yes, so I, I have a couple of things to say to that comment. I think uh, we do have proof of principle immune engineering. There's some really great evidence of um, leaders in the field of immune engineering. Uh, even thinking about vaccines and vaccine development, that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're giving the immune system instructions. And so vaccines have been the oldest form in some ways of immune engineering. And now we're getting much more precise about how we can deliver those cues over really a controlled not only concentrations, but controlled kinetic timeframes and potentially switchable. So thinking of control systems in that regard. So we have evidence of immune engineering with sort of particulate platforms for not only these 
um, prophylactic vaccine uh, approaches, but now the field has really great evidence of uh, treating autoimmune diseases and um, really good uh, preclinical data thinking about treating um, MS, diabetes, these sorts of immune involvement, diseases that have immune involvement and trying to correct or slow down the or recorrect the immune response. Uh, and so we're trying to take that knowledge and those experts um, and, and think about doing that similarly in the lung. Problem with the immune system is every immune disease has its own nuance and all its own controls problems. So you really have to understand the base system and then start to get in there and, and tinker with it like you would with any other um, um, system. So I guess as a chemical engineer, sometimes I think of how did I end up in this space of lung you know, it's, it's materials, it's fluids, it's um, uh, immune, you know, immunology, these really disparate fields. How am I as a chemical engineer suited to do any of this? And it really is uh, an engineering problem because so much of what we think of as, as engineers in, in material science, it's, you know, how do you deliver these controlled, so there's, uh, there's controls, it's on-off systems, it's, um, you know, trying to understand the lag, lag time and, you know, what sort of forward loops are you looking at? It's kinetics, it's really understanding reaction rates and time and how to control and tune those um, in terms of both the stimulation but also the particle system and using that to your advantage. Um, and certainly then the transport aspect is uh, near and dear. How do you get things to the right places? And um, so there, there are many engineering aspects uh, in that too. Again, this comes down to thinking of platform technologies that can provide the basis for tackling other diseases too, not just those we already know about, but the unknown ones that are expected to cause future pandemics. Platform technology is really the right way to think about it for us, especially. Um, I think initially, you know, when this pandemic first hit, we're a lab that does respiratory drug delivery, respiratory immune engineering. Here's a, a virus with respiratory implications and immune system, and we're ready to jump in. And so that's where we're really trying to push the science to advance the fundamental understanding of where do things go, how to deliver things correctly to the right cells, and, you know, set off that cascade of cues that would be important not only for this current pandemic, but any other respiratory viruses and certainly flu, influenza, we don't have um, you know, a great understanding of how to control that and regulate it. ARDS is, um, just as a, a disease is really challenging and when it presents clinically from any other different, whether it's viral or non-viral, uh, we really don't have a, a good way to, to turn off the immune system, both systemically or in the lung. And so those are having a platform technology that's able to come in and tinker safely with the uh, the lung space at a controlled amount of time and then go away is really where we're trying to put a, a lot of our effort so that we can uh, come in later and uh, customize it to each you know disease as it as, a, as we understand more about it and our immunology colleagues are able to kind of say, hey, here's the target, here's the timeline, and we can come in and here's, here's our solution. Mm -hmm. Now, Kathy, this is the big and difficult question, of course. Um, when might we expect to see something uh, emerge from this that is usable? And uh, I'm thinking, um, you know, the COVID, I mean, we're still in the midst of the COVID crisis and there are people now saying that actually we're just going to have to live with this for years ahead. So, you know, for this in particular, but also for future pandemics, when realistically do you think you might have something that will be useful for that? Ah, yes, um, the age old question. So I'll say that we're... We're certainly motivated to get this out as soon as possible and um, 
we have some good pre preclinical data, but you know, for us to be able to expand this out of our lab, we need partners and um, you know more data. I think to support this, I think there's lots of great efforts, and I read about new things every day that are going on. Realistically, what our platform is going to look like, um, we're hoping that we could, you know, start the process of getting it into people somewhere in the next you know year timeframe. But who knows what that actually looks like? It's a it's a long hard roll to to get this in. I think given this current pandemic, um, we've seen some amazing advances in crossing these historically difficult boundaries from preclinical into clinical data and getting things uh, into people faster in order to help, you know, to take the promising treatments faster. Um, there's pros and cons, obviously, of that. You don't want to cut any corners, but I think this has really shooken up our, our normal system. And so technologies like ours may have a, a chance to get into clinics sooner than they might um, just based on the need and um, your point that this is going to be something we have to deal with for a while is probably, unfortunately, a very true statement. I asked Tom Webster this same question. How soon can we expect to see something clinically useful coming out of his research? Yeah, so this is a great question, right? And, and always a difficult one. And of course, every day we're thinking about our own approaches to this. But let me just mention, you know, that Moderna, their approach is nanotechnology. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but their vaccine approach involves a lipid nanoparticle, right? They published this, right? This is common knowledge. So I think that's very interesting because there, there are skeptics to nanomedicine, as there are to all fields. In fact, um, before all this uh, COVID-19 situation occurred, there were many people who were claiming at conferences and editorials that uh, nanomedicine has never produced a real benefit to health. And, and that's flat wrong. <laughs> there have been a lot of non-virus approvals for nanoparticles for treating different diseases. But let's look at, in the United States, our, our one of our, you know, number one a company that's close to really having a solution is using a nanoparticle, you know, a lipid nanoparticle. And that should really tell everybody that nanomedicine is a field to pay attention to for treating viruses, you know, and if this becomes the winner, the one from Moderna or one, you know, many people think we'll have a multitude of successful approaches when this is all said and done. And if, if one of the key ones is involves a nanoparticle, then we should all pay attention to this as a platform technology for the next virus. So, you know, I'd love to be optimistic about my own research and my own approaches, um, but if they don't work, we already have a success story, I think, in um, nanotechnology and nanomedicine led by some of our biggest pharmaceutical companies. These efforts to develop antiviral agents and therapies are relying on cutting-edge science. But some of the challenges of the pandemic have been painfully basic. In many countries, hospital staff have lacked the personal protective equipment, such as face masks, that can prevent them from being exposed to the virus. Increasingly, this kind of protection, especially face masks, is seen too as being vital to how the general public can keep themselves safe and slow viral transmission. At Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh in Scotland, smart textiles specialist George Stylios has been looking at how he could use his experience to produce effective and low-cost protective clothing items. 
George has been working on new designs of masks, which are made by seamless knitted technology for a better fit, and which might incorporate filters or antiviral agents that make use of nanoparticles. You see, certain years ago, I don't remember now, it must have been eight years ago or so, I had a relatively big project that was looking at filtration efficiency against chemical and biological substances. And there were industrial companies involved, a major hospital, and of course, us doing the research. And during this time, whilst we were measuring the efficiency of those materials, I had to test medical gowns and face masks. In order to be able to test some of these materials, we had to develop a particular instrument that will test these materials without bursting them because the existing testing equipment were bursting those relatively delicate and lightweight filters. So when this virus came about, I mean, any human being will have the curiosity to say, well, wait a minute, you know, I've tested this, maybe with my research background and my expertise, I could do something to help. A face mask that would be from a different material, a face mask that would fit better, a face mask that will have a higher efficiency. I can help a little bit towards that. That would be fantastic. We are developing face masks that can really wrap very well around the body, around the face by virtue of the fact that they are knitted. Knitted materials are, you know, more elastic than other materials. We can have these face masks without seam, so they come in as a whole garment, if you like. We can have antiviral treatments on the masks themselves, so that perhaps even when you wash them, they don't become ineffective, and you could have any an insertion of these so that they have high filtration efficiency, and to some extent, relatively inexpensive. We are trying to use gelatin nanoparticles. Again, they're cheap. I was dreaming that I could have a kit for everybody that they can have at their home and, and do deep coating on those so that they could have filtration in their homemade masks, for example. George has also been working on fabrics and devices that could help us to sense and track the disease. He explained that one simple but effective option could be for all of us to wear devices that are continuously looking out for physiological indicators of something amiss. There is a possibility of having a small chip even inside a button and that chip anonymously will record me if I have the infection. You don't have to use your mobile phone. This has come about because I have been doing quite a lot of work on trying to sort out the ECG. You know, how you can pick up your heart whilst you are walking or running or doing things like that. And it is this technology now that certain people within government are saying, well, maybe we have to look at another opportunity that something like that will give us so that it can be completely anonymous. Okay, so maybe this isn't so much to do with testing and tracing and contact tracing, which clearly requires things to be not anonymous, that's the whole point, but simply to let the, the wearer know that they need to then go and get tested. Is that exactly. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and basically, you wear this belt like you do with um, 
the heart rate monitors, there are commercial heart rate monitors that they look very similar. This has a temperature sensor and also this belt can measure the respiration of your, of your body. If you combine those two things together and together with your heartbeat, you may identify early enough symptoms of COVID and you can have a a better prognosis than, or actually quicker. I know some breathability patterns that would be enough to trigger a warning that something is wrong. If I combine that with temperature, this warning becomes better. And if I have a heartbeat also, becomes even better. Tom Webster, too, spoke about this need in the age of COVID-19 and perhaps other pandemics to create what amounts to a diagnostic environment all around us in daily life. Our old system of when you feel ill, you have to go into these concrete buildings called hospitals to get a diagnosis, to get treatment, is not working, right? And that is not the future. You know, we have to do a much better job of bringing the hospital to the patient, you know, of bringing the kit to determine if you're testing positive to you so that you can take it at your home and you don't have to get in a car and, you know, hopefully not transmit COVID-19 to somebody else while you're waiting to find out if you yourself has COVID-19, yeah. right? You know, I, the, the whole idea and, and actually nanotechnology, I think, is playing a big part in this that you know developing sensors developing point of care kits that can be mailed to your your house to to keep everything as convenient for you as possible so you can test to see if you're positive you know and this is just one example among many healthcare problems not just viruses but even for cancer or for you know diabetes i mean we have to do just a much better job overall of bringing healthcare to the patient I asked George whether, to realise something of this sort, we might find an ever-increasing need for materials that do things. He argued that the demands of this kind being made on materials technologies strengthen the need for international collaboration to find solutions. George, it, it sounds as though one trend, maybe, that you're talking about is that we may need to go increasingly from passive materials that simply place a physical barrier between us and the virus or other viruses uh, towards active materials that do something to deactivate the virus. I mean, that may just be as simple as, you know, physically absorbing the virus, but it may actually be something that is actively antiviral or something that signals in some sense the, the, the presence of the virus, that increasingly um, the materials we're going to need, not just for this crisis, but to live in this you know, pandemic-prone world, are going to be active ones. You are absolutely right. And th there is a great effort. Well, there has been a great effort into active materials, even before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, there are groups that they are pushing forward with that. And I think one of the messages that I would like to give to colleagues would be, hey, let us work together. Instead of you in America doing something and me in the UK doing something else, and someone somewhere in Taiwan or Korea or whatever doing, let us get together and try to really do it faster and better. 
This is MRS Bulletin's Materials News from the Materials Research Society. For more news, log on to the MRS Bulletin website at mrsbulletin.org and follow us on Twitter at MRS Bulletin. Don't miss the next episode of MRS Bulletin Materials News. Subscribe now. Thank you for listening.